in 05 and 06, I deployed to Kuwait. I used to wait every day for them to say, nature going home. I missed my life, missed my wife. For 15 months, she was all alone. But when I got back, I felt out of control. Feeling entitled, I put my life on hold. I keep on drinking, so I'm sinking in a river of liquor. Me and my wife weren't all right. I didn't reconnect with it. I had a business, insurance agent, and rental properties. But is there something bigger than this? I know there's gotta be, so I invested in myself. I started seeing coaches. Life is a camera, I fixed the lens, and now I see in focus. Now my life's unrecognizable from my life just a couple years ago. 17 plus years. Of marriage, it's never been better than this. And we got three kids, that's who I do it for. I'm gonna be a leader, I'ma lead the way, cause I'm a firm believer. We can do anything we want. If I said it, then I meant it. I probably already did it. Consider it done. Consider it done. If you need some inspiration, you should play this championship leadership podcast. Hey, Bailey. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back. Championship Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Nate Bailey. And uh, today, incredible guest, as always. But first, to get more information on the Championship Leadership Podcast and everything that I'm up to as well inside of my coaching and programs and experiences that I put on, please go check out my website, natebailey.org, to find out all things that I am up to, uh, along with all the other episodes that we've had, incredible episodes and guests that we've had through over the last two and a half years. So today's guest is out of a, a cool little town called Hatfield in New England, Fleet Mall. Uh, really fun conversation, very interesting man. Um, been to prison, been out incredible life and experiences that he's had, some things that he's involved in um, as a coach, in meditation, in mindfulness, like just just a really, really fun conversation that we had today, a little bit of a longer episode today. And I always know when whenever we go over 30 minutes, 35 minutes, get uh, close to 40, 45 minutes, that the episode was a great episode and a great conversation because the time always seems to fly. So with that, I want to introduce you to Fleet Mall. You can find out more about him and what he's up to at fleetmall.com. And uh, also you can find out uh, more about his, his uh, programs and companies that he has. Another site, hmi.fleetmall.com. So with that, without further ado, let me introduce you to Fleet Mall. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back. Championship Leadership. I got Fleet Mall with me here today, uh, just outside of Hatfield in New England, small little town, he says, in, in New England. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Fleet. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Nate. Great to see you. Absolutely. Um, the first question I, I always like to ask to kick us off is Championship Leadership is the name of the podcast. So what, uh, what comes to mind for you? What does that mean to you when you hear Championship Leadership? Yeah, well, when I think um couple things come to mind. I mean, I'm a sports fan, so I think of what does it really take to, to win those championships, and it requires some awesome levels of leadership, both from coaches and the players themselves. And, uh, you know, I, I've actually 
read a lot of books about championship seasons, especially in football, various teams, and it's pretty awesome what they put together and the type of leadership it takes to excel at that level. And um, along with that, I generally divide leadership into both self-leadership and then being able to influence others. And I think the ground is really self-leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're going to be a positive influence for others, have others follow or, or even, you know, be part of a team that we can kind of do it as a team, it's got to rise out of our own self-leadership because if we're not in the driver's seat of our own life, we can't really expect others to let us, let, let us be in the driver's seat or even the co-pilot seat of their life. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that, right? You got to lead yourself first before you can go and lead somebody else. Um, are you a Pats fan? Yeah, I was originally a Broncos fan and I still basically am. Um, okay. But since I moved to New England, I was in, I lived in, in the Boulder, Denver area forever. Okay. And, and I was there through all the Elway years and, and, uh, and all the Super Bowl losses, but then finally the Super Bowl wins, right? So yeah, I'm a diehard right. Bronco fan. But when I moved out here to New England, you know, I, I tell my son that, well, I, my second team is a pass. And he goes, you don't get to have a second team. But now that the quarterback moved down to where did he go? Tampa? Tampa, yeah. Tampa, yeah. So that's a whole new era here in Pats. It is. Week. Yeah, it's interesting to see. And <laughs> Brady's still Brady, yeah. playing fairly well, it looks like, down there. So, um. What, uh, well, tell us a little bit more about you and, and, and your story and the path that, uh, in life that you want to share with us that, that's gotten you to where you are today and, and what is it that you are up to and doing today? Yeah, well, there's kind of maybe three basic areas of my life. One is I've been involved uh, in directing a nonprofit, co-directing a nonprofit for 30-plus years um, and uh, 35 years, I guess, and and that work is about bringing mindfulness and mindfulness-based programming into the criminal justice system for at-risk, incarcerated, and returning youth and adults, our incarcerated citizens. Uh, and then and in the last 12 years, we expanded into bringing mindfulness-based programming to correctional officers, probation and parole officers, and now police and fire and emergency, the courts, judges, prosecutors, public defenders. So really into the whole public safety field. and. Uh, uh, you know, mindfulness helps, uh, you know, helps people deal with, with manage stress in a much more effective way. It also is a core tool for getting in a self-leadership position with yourself, cultivating greater resilience and having more choice for, for people who find themselves incarcerated or in trouble in their lives and with the system. For me, it's really about choice, helping them recognize that they have a choice, that gap that, you know, uh, we always talk about between the impulse and the response, right? That place where you can stop, think, make a choice. And mindfulness really helps with that. And it, our programs there tend to be an integration of mindfulness with emotional intelligence training. And then on the, on the side of the professionals, the, the statistics, the extreme health risks experienced by our public safety professionals, especially corrections professionals, they're just off the charts in terms of early death from all the chronic stress-related ailments. Uh, anxiety, depression, suicides, very high rates of suicidality because they're living in a state of chronic stress and then they're continually exposed to both primary and secondary trauma exposure. So we developed a model called Mindfulness-Based Wellness and Resiliency, helping them outside of work recharge, top off the batteries, become more resilient physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually resilient, and then learn to work on shift in new ways where they're not doing so much damage to themselves. So we're giving self-regulation skills where instead of being jacked up in hypervigilance for eight hours and then not knowing how to turn it off when they leave shift, we get them so they can modulate their own uh, physiology 
to be in that optimal physiological, emotional, cognitive state for whatever they're doing, whether it's a crisis or filling out reports at their desk or, you know, whatever they might be doing and having that ability. So we teach a lot of self-regulation skills, mindfulness-based self-regulation skills. And all of that is not that dissimilar to what I bring into corporations and businesses, bring the same kind of skill sets as well as this model I developed during my own time inside, which I'll mention in a moment, uh, called Radical Responsibility. So part of my backstory is I was one of those kind of extremists that came up through the 60s in counterculture area. I, counterculture era. I always went into everything, you know, just full bore. So um, those were pretty crazy years. And uh, But I was also pursue, always on a spiritual quest and always training myself. And by I eventually landed myself uh, with a federally funded sabbatical, not to make light of it. I was actually thrown in prison for 14 years on drug charges. And that's not something I'm proud of at all. I really regret the damage that caused in the world and really regret anybody's suffering I contributed to. But I do feel good about what I did with the time. It basically became my monastery time. I spent 14 years working on myself, but also serving in that environment. I taught school for 14 years, helping my fellow prisoners learn to read or get a GED or, or study college classes, learn English. We started the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world. This was the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. So it was the maximum security federal prison hospital in the U.S. There's another one in Rochester near you. This yeah. one where I was is higher security. And uh, this was the, high, the AIDS epidemic, which is going into full swing in 1985. So they're bringing the AIDS patients from all the federal penitentiaries, the high security penitentiaries to this facility. And uh, so men were dying under terrible conditions there from AIDS and other, you know, liver disease and heart ailments and the rest of it, cancer. And so, and dying under terrible, terrible conditions, isolated from their families, no medical choices, no choices around care, very negligent care, no pain management. And we started the first hospice program uh, and eventually I was able to start a national organization while I was in prison. And now there's about 75 or 80 hospice programs in state and federal prisons in this country. So we completely transformed the end of life care in prisons. And uh, I also had learned about mindfulness and meditation long before going to prison, which shows what a knucklehead I was, that I still ended up in prison. <laughs> but um, when I got there, I decided, you know, I got to focus on this full time. You know, it's time to leave all the craziness behind and show up and serve. And uh, I was really motivated. My son was nine years old when I got locked up and was going to grow up without a dad. And so I wanted to leave a better legacy for him than just his dad went to prison or died in prison. So, you know, I was just, you know, practicing meditation like my hair was on fire and trying to show up and serve in that environment. So I taught meditation for 14 years and started a national organization while I was inside. Uh, and so that's a flourishing organization now, some 35 years later. Um, that I mentioned before that's bringing mindfulness into the whole criminal justice and public safety field. So that's kind of my backstory. But the other piece about that that I really learned, when I got in prison, I very quickly picked up on the environment, what was going on, and everybody had a huge victim story going. And of course, you know, out in the public, we think of prisoners as the perpetrators and, right, and, you know, we've been victimized by them and they're in there and and uh, but of course, anybody that ends up in prison feels victimized. They many of them have been victimized their whole life. That's why they ended up in trouble. Uh, and then they feel victimized by the system. And and so everybody's walking around with this victim story and a lot of negativity and and anger. And you know, people protect themselves because they're being buried in a mountain of guilt and shame and demonization. So 
the way you protect yourself just psychically is you, you toughen up and get bitter and angry. And that's the way you're just trying to survive, right? Which is really unfortunate because it doesn't allow you to get in touch with the general, the genuine remorse and regret you need to really begin to turn your life around. I was lucky I came into that environment with a lot of spiritual and psychological training. So mm-hmm. I immediately woke up and said, I don't want to come out of prison angry and bitter. I don't want to live my life that way in here. And I quickly realized that, that the only way through and out for me was to take really embrace 100 or 200% responsibility for having got myself into that situation and what I was going to do with it. So it's really out of that that I started developing the model I call radical responsibility. And through that, that 14 years, I came out, you know, uh, ready to contribute to society, having contributed a lot already. And I not, not a shred of attitude, not angry, not bitter. And, and uh, I'm, I'm just really grateful for that. And I had a lot of support, but it, it's really that taking that place, that approach of this, you know, radical ownership for the circumstances we face and, and coming back to that question, okay, maybe this sucks or maybe it's highly unjust, but what am I going to do? What am I going to do with it? Where am I going to yeah. go with it? What's the most creative way I can respond? Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. What to, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your model for radical responsibility, with, if you could. Yeah. Well, I usually describe it as voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life. Now, with a little self-honesty, we all know that a lot of the circumstances we face in life, we had a little something to do with, right? We at least contributed right. to it. Sometimes we completely set ourselves up for situations. But even those circumstances that really seem to just fall out of the sky and land on our head, like everybody would agree, man, you had nothing to do with that, right? It's yeah. just, you know, even those in under this idea, I want to embrace 100% ownership for those. Why? Not to burden myself, not to blame myself, but because it's the only place I have any power. Mm-hmm. So this model, you know, it's a difficult model for people to get right off the bat sometimes because we've been so enculturated into the, into the idea of blame and shame. Yeah. So if something goes down, right, somebody's got to be blamed. And if I don't find somebody else to blame, then I must be to blame. And I don't want to be blamed anymore. I've been blamed and shamed enough in my life. So we all instinctively deflect blame out there, right? Constantly looking for somebody to blame each and every circumstance on. And that's just natural. We shouldn't feel bad about that. We're all vulnerable human beings with tender, vulnerable hearts. And of course, we don't want to get shamed or bruised anymore. But the problem is in doing so, we give away our power. Because let's say you and Nate, let's say we're in a, some kind of business arrangement, Nate, and and something goes wrong, and I'm convinced it's all your fault, and you probably have a different view of the situation. And, you know, we're, in a, we're ready to go to court or we're, you know, ready to go to fisticuffs or whatever. And some, one of our friends says, no, 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 no. I want you to sit down with this mediator. So we do that. We both tell our story, and the mediator goes, boy, I don't know what to do. You guys are both great salespeople. You know, so he said, he said thing. Uh, but I'll tell you what, we do have the video. So we're going to go out and I'm going to go out and show this video. I'm going to pull together a focus group of 10 really smart people who don't give a hoot about either one of you. And so they're completely neutral and we'll see what they say. So mediator goes off and does that, comes back and turns to me and goes, you know, Fleet, I have to say they did feel that it was more Nate's responsibility, that he's more at fault in this situation. I said, boy, I'm glad you found some brilliant folks. And they realized that it's all <laughs> Nate's fault. And the media said, well, no, Fleet, actually, they feel, you know, you do carry some of the responsibility, you know, they figure it's maybe it's like 70, 30, 60, 40. And I go, well, I don't really believe it. But as long as they agree, it's mostly his fault or <laughs> right. all his fault. Come on. Okay. All right. 
All right, I'll agree. I had I had some part. I'll, I'll agree. I'll take thirty percent, but it's still seventy percent his fault, and I feel vindicated. Right? Does that really make sense? I mean, we all do that. It feels very logical. Yeah, right. But if I'm convinced, I'm unhappy by definition, right? The situation where I'm very unhappy. If I'm convinced it's seventy percent your fault, how much of my power did I just give away to you? Um, all of it. Probably all. At least seventy percent. Yeah, at least. Because can I control yeah. you? No, no. So if I don't get to be happy until you change, I just put you in charge of my internal yeah, state. Right. So no matter what the rationale of how we might want to parse out, you know, responsibility, culpability, blame, and all the rest of it, it's just a completely inefficient, unproductive use of my time. I need to focus my energy on that, which I can do something about, which is this. And that's mm-hmm. hard enough, as we all know. Yeah. At least I got a fighting chance with myself, right? Yeah. But if I'm right. focused on what everybody else needs to do in the world for me to be happy and me to be okay, I'm just setting myself up for giving my power away, being disempowered, and for a lot of suffering. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that, you know, in the world, we don't need to try to seek change or sometimes seek justice, but it's very different to seek that and advocate for that from a place of self-leadership, self-responsibility than from that victim mindset and a constant blame. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, who would be some people th- through your journey, uh, you know, some championship leaders that have impacted you and, mm-hmm. and what are some of this, the, those characteristics that have really stood out to you from, from these individuals that maybe has helped to impact who you are as a, as a leader? Yeah, well, there's a lot of them, but yeah. I'll mention a few. But to frame that, in the radical responsibility model, we use this distinction of being down in the drama zone. And I use Cartman's drama triangle a lot, which I think is one of the most genius psychological distinctions anybody ever came up with. And it's that triangulation between the victim, persecutor, and rescuer. And those are all shadowy power positions. Mm-hmm. And the rescuer is the rescuer that's rescuing you to keep you down, right? They want to be in a power position. The persecutors obviously want to be in a power position. And the victim can play the victim card to be in a power position. So yeah. it just creates that never-ending toxic circle of drama. Yeah. So in the empowerment zone, we flip that triangle on its head and we create something called the empowerment triangle. And instead of being persecutors, we learn to be good challengers. Like, how can I challenge myself? and challenge others without making me wrong or making them wrong and others without being a persecutor. And then instead of being a rescuer where I'm, I'm supposedly helping you, but don't forget I'm up here and you're down here. Yeah. Pal, right. It's my psychological need to be the rescuer, the fixer. Instead, can I support people like this? Mm-hmm. So I call that the coach. I know you refer to yourself as coach Nate. Yep. Right. And I'm sure that's the way you support. In fact, you see people, we all see people up. They can go beyond where we are. Right. Yeah. Right. But that empowered coaching. Right. So mm-hmm. instead of rescuers, we want to become coaches. And then instead of being in that victim mindset, I want to be in what I call the co-creative mindset. And I get there with one simple question. No matter how bad the circumstance I'm in is, one simple question can get me out of the woe is me victim mindset into the creative mindset. Next simple question is what can I do? The minute I ask myself that question, there's a million ways I can approach any situation or any person. Yeah. I got a tyrant for a boss. There's lots of different ways to approach that and you're going to get different results. Everybody's got a human being button on them somewhere. If you can find a way to press the human being button and you're going to get a better result. If you push Mm -hmm. their fear button, their authority button, their insecurity button, you know what you're going to get, right? Right. So, so we call that co-creative. 
So the empowerment triangle is operating from that co-creative mindset, the realm of possibilities, solution-based thinking, learning to be a good coach, a good challenger for yourself and others. So one model for that was my first spiritual teacher, my first meditation teacher. He was a great Tibetan meditation master that came over to the West and he escaped Tibet uh, that was under Chinese occupation. They were destroying Tibet and, and killing uh, all the Buddhist leaders. And he escaped Tibet in the 1950s, uh, late 1950s, and eventually went to, got an education at Oxford in England. And he came to the U.S. probably in about 1970. I, I had a great good fortune of studying with him for about 10 years straight. And, uh, and he just, I'm more than anybody I ever met, he lived in the, the mindset of the co-creative and he was the best challenger, best coach I ever, because you, you didn't mind him challenging you because you knew he believed in you and you knew he loved you. And, you know, he was always saying, you know, I, I say the slogan for the challenger, just do it. Like the Nike slogan. He said yeah. that all the time, way before Nike. Or the coach says, you can do it, right? You can do it, right? So he was literally saying those things all the time and coming from that mind of possibility and saw everybody's goodness and everybody's possibility. You know, other people have been really influenced. My, um, I did 12-step work while I was inside, and my sponsor, a guy named uh, John, who unfortunately we just lost last year, uh, mm. another guy that's just super real guy, no pretense. You know, I'm a drunk just like you are, but he really did. He wasn't really a drunk anymore. He was somebody that led a powerful life, and he also lived. He was a great coach, a great challenger, and lived in that mindset of possibility and creativity. You know, some of the influential uh, historical people, uh, Victor Frankl, I imagine you're aware of him and his book, Man yeah. Search Meeting. I actually have an autograph. I never met him, but a friend of mine knew him while I was in prison and got me an autographed copy of his book, which I still have a paperback oh, wow. version. And, uh, you know, he recognized that gap, that space between uh, stimulus and response, where, which is where everything is in life. It's where we have choice, right? And that's where we can be in that self-leadership position. And he, he discovered being at Auschwitz in the worst death camp of the Nazi Holocaust that he still had choices. And he built his whole post-World War II philosophy, logotherapy, and his future work around recognizing that even in the worst possible circumstances imaginable, we have choice. And that choice is the attitude we bring to the situation, right? I mean, maybe we're going to die, but we can die angry, bitter, and, you know, and or we could, you know, it was said that Gandhi died with the word of God on his lips. It was said that Jesus on the cross died expressing compassion for the men being crucified with him. Right. Mm-hmm. So even even in the most powerless circumstances, we still have a choice. And it was really that work, you know, for 14 years, I was in a maximum security federal prison. Sociologists call maximum security prisons total institutions, which basically means they're a totalitarian environment. Resistance is futile. And especially the one I was in, because they had the psychiatric wing there, where if you buck the system, you'd literally be back in one of the lockdown units, four-point restraints, concrete bunket, and hose down at night and pump full of halidol and thorazine. I mean, literally, resistance was futile. Well, how do you get anything done in that environment? You know, how do you accomplish I started two national organizations. You're not supposed to be able to do that from in prison. I don't say that to pat myself on the back. I say that to point to the power of this philosophy. You know, I started all kinds of programs in that prison and was able to get two national organizations. It's really two national movements started, the prison hospice movement and the prison Dharma, prison mindfulness movement. And it was all because I operated from that place of what can I do? 
and how can I get in relationship with people? Not manipulating people, but getting in genuine connection with people so that we find a way to say, yeah, let's try this, right? And yeah. uh, so, it, you know, it simply, it works. It works. Yeah. What's, um, so you go to prison, uh, you found yourself in a place um, in life for whatever reason uh, that would have you going to prison. How, it sounds like it was a fairly quick was it just the fact that you knew that, you know, you're leaving a, a nine-year-old behind that you mentioned? And what, what really was it that really clicked for you that was like, whatever path you were on was definitely one that needed to be yeah. shifted now? Well, it was two things. Well, maybe three. So, first of all, I'd had a lot of good training. You know, I'd had been on this wandering path and involved in drugs and all that stuff that I really regret. I knew, man, I don't really get regret getting caught up a bit in the counterculture. That was the zeitgeist of my youth, right? But yeah. going into it as far as I did and then getting caught up in the criminality and the drug stuff, I, I really regret that and the impact it had on others. So, but at the same time, I'd received a lot of training. I had a master's degree in, uh, it was, then it was called Buddhist and Western psychology, but it, now they call it contemplative psychotherapy, but it was a three-year clinical training program. I'd also um, been training with this phenomenal meditation master for 10 years. So I had, I came in with a lot of resources, right? So yeah, so you had that training, but you were, you weren't utilizing it then. I wasn't applying it to my whole life. Clearly I was, you know, I was, I was compartmentalizing my life and I had all this shadow stuff going on and, and uh, rationalizing stuff and self-medicating around the cognitive dissonance of all so, but when I got locked up, I hit that wall and I had to really face everything. And, and especially the fact of what I'd done to my son. Sure. Right? So I just, I just hit a wall. And so I, I just immediately realized all, you know, I mean, first of all, you're locked up. So, you don't. I mean, people can find ways to engage the criminal life in prison, but it was clear. I didn't want anything to do with that. I realized the jig was up and, you know, and so all the craziness went away and all that good training I'd received was able to kick in and I was able to use that to help others. And uh, it was the influence of, you know, my family legacy. I had a good family. I mean, we had our issues, some alcoholism in our family and stuff that probably contributed to some of my demons, but, but overall a good family. And, you know, what I received from my teachers and my family and my education. And, uh, you know, so I had that right kind of with me and then the inspiration of my son. And then, you know, there I was in this hellish environment where it was either let it crush you or find some way to get creative and show up and serve and turn it into a transformational journey, which I did. So, yeah. And I'm, I'm very grateful that all those things came together because, you know, most people come out of prison much worse than they go in. Mm -hmm. uh, they come out more criminalized or they come out just bitter and broken, traumatized. Yeah. I actually have a very good friend of mine that um, went to prison for very similar reasons. And, uh, was there for about two years, came out, just, just had the chance to reconnect with him. I actually came out earlier this year, but uh, he came out with a very similar perspective, which was very good to see and hear, you know, not, not exactly sure what it was uh, that, that had him choose to do that, but I think it was probably very similar to what you maybe experienced as well. But um, what, uh, let's shift gears here real quick. What would be, and you know, maybe you've already talked about it, but I think we have a lot of these moments in our life critical moments, turning points, defining moments in our life where you're kind of in that fork roads. We have a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners, especially this year, 2020, a lot of uncertainty, craziness, election, pandemic, whatever you want to call it. You know, there's rioting and there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. 
Um, And yet there's big decisions to be made by a lot of people. And it's not always easy to to be able to, to know which way to go. A lot of times we know which way we want to go, but unsure. Uh, is there a moment that obviously you made the choice you did because it has you where you are today. Uh, but is there a moment had you chose differently, you'd be in a very different place that you could share with us? Yeah, there's several moments. Well, you know, at one point when I was convicted, I, I went to trial because I was, I, I was uh, indicted on one charge that I really didn't feel I was guilty of. Otherwise I would have pled, you know, try to get whatever I could. Uh, I refused to test a lot of people testified against me. It just didn't feel right for me to do that. It wasn't like I was some stand-up mafia guy or anything. It was just yeah. my Buddhist values. I'm not going to, somebody yeah. else is going to do my time. I'm going to, so, you know, uh, I got charged with this so-called kingpin statute, which I didn't feel I was guilty of at all, but that's the only reason I went to court, but I was found guilty on all counts. And uh, so then I'm awaiting sentencing. And uh, the, the day before sentencing, they had me in a, in a suicide watch cell in a big county jail. And I wasn't suicidal, but I was certainly freaked out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had the lights on in the cell. I couldn't sleep. And, and so I was up all night. And, uh, and, you know, some point, I don't know, before dawn, I stood up on this built-in stainless steel sink toilet thing. And so I could get up to where there was a little tiny window way up high on the wall and look out and see the stars. And I just looking out there at the night sky and something just rose up in me. And I just made the decision. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up on my son. I'm not going to give up on myself. And I'm not going to give up on life, no matter what they do. Because I was facing a potential life with no parole sentence the next day. Life with no parole, which I'd still be there. Yeah. The only thing that would get you out is a presidential pardon. And that's not going to happen. Yeah. So fortunately, I didn't get life. I originally got 30 years. And then on my three years and my appeal took three years and they knocked off one count and that knocked it down to an aggregate sentence of 25 and on 25, I served 14 and a half because you used to get a lot of good time. These days you get 25, you're going to serve about 22 at least. So I was fortunate in that regard. But anyway, I, that was a really clear decision I made in my life. And, you know, and all the way along through those 14 years, I kept making the decision to do the right thing, even at the risk of my life in many cases you know, protecting prisoners, dying prisoners who were being abused or threatened by other prisoners. I mean, I just kept being willing to make those tough decisions and make the right decision. And I think that just kind of builds fortitude and character. But at the same time, I, you know, I I practice inner yogic and meditation practice hours a day, every day, and I still do. And that gives you a lot of resilience and a lot of depth. And when I got out in 1999, I was just short of my 50th birthday. Um, I owed 300,000 to the IRS and I'm going to forget about that. Well, as it turned out, my brother-in-law was a lawyer. And the first time I saw him, I was just telling, I don't know what I'm going to do. I get, you know, I'm broke. I'm an ex-con and you know, I had no money. And he said, well, let me have my partner and check into it. And it turned out that, that if they hadn't legally tried to collect or hadn't come, formed a legal agreement or something. There were several things they didn't do. And so the statute uh-huh. of limitations had run out on okay. it. Thank goodness. Yeah. That, that was about a year after I got out that I figured that out. Uh, but anyway, I was broke in ex-con and I had to push together, piece together life for myself. But really I've had nothing but opportunities since I got out. And that was all because of what I did when I was on the inside. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had a great life traveling all over the world and leading trainings and, and being able to be a positive influence for people. And, um, you know, one of the, more recent decisions that I think everybody's making is when this COVID-19 thing hit, you know, it's 
threw us all back on our heels in lots of different ways, you know, and there's emotional stuff and political stuff and the economic stuff. And, you know, and on top of that, we have this whole upheaval going on after, you know, the tragic killing of George Floyd and and the many other uh, African-Americans who've died at the hands of the police. Um, And, you know, all the social turmoil has been going on since. So how do you relate with all that? And, you know, I'm as prone to getting triggered and caught up emotionally, politically with all my thoughts, anybody else, but because of my meditation practice, my, you know, daily dedication to these practices, I have the resilience and the self-awareness to not let myself go down, uh, down those rabbit holes. I keep coming back to, okay, what can I do? What do I need to do? What, how do I add value? And fortunately the nonprofits, um, involved with, well, it's one nonprofit, we have four divisions, but we've always been early adopters in the online space. So we did a lot of in-person work, but we already did a lot online, but we pivoted everything. So everything we're mm-hmm. doing is online right now. We're training correctional officers online, probation and parole officers online. We look forward to going back to in-person work when we can, but also with all of my, you know, I used to be a road warrior. I was on, I traveled every week, delivering seminars all over the U.S. and Europe, and sometimes in Africa and sometimes in South America. And uh, suddenly that all stopped. So I just switched. Okay, what can I do now? I just started building a digital seminar business online. We put on our first big uh, virtual summit back in May, the Global Resilience Summit. We had 47 amazing world-class speakers, and uh, we had 32,000 people sign up, and it was a great success. And right wow. now we're working on our next summit that's called uh, that I think you'd enjoy, uh, kind of in alignment with the coaching you do. I think it's called uh, The Best Year of Your Life. Yeah. It's going to be January 19th to 28th. And the idea is to help people really kick off their year, right? You know, we all make those, those New Year's resolutions and usually don't follow through on them, right? Because we make, right. Them, we make them from a mindset of I'm not enough, but maybe if I do this, I would be enough. And so we know we're setting ourselves up to be self-shamed and disappointed. So we just run the other way as quickly as we can. But there is a way at the beginning of the year to say, you know, I'm going to make some I'm going to shift some priorities here and some changes that really align with who I want to be and what the results I want in life and get the coaching support to do that. So this whole summit, we're, we're aiming for 50,000 to 100,000 attendees this time. And a lot of it, a lot of, a lot of it's going to be about coaching, how to coach people to get the results they want in relationships and business, financial health, physical health and well-being, happiness, their spiritual growth, you know, all the different domains of life. How do we how do we step into that to the next level for ourselves? So we're busy working on that right now. So, you know, it's just a matter of uh, who was it? Somebody was telling a story. I don't know whether it's Tony Robbins or Dean Graciosi or somebody was telling this story about, you know, the restaurants are in big trouble. And I have friends in a restaurant business. Mm-hmm. My son was in a restaurant business his whole life. And, you know, they're really hurting through this COVID-19 thing. And telling the story of a guy who had a bunch of big restaurants and suddenly he had to shut down his restaurants. And so he just pivoted and went and built a big, huge outdoor thing and turned his whole thing into a grocery and food delivery business and overnight, and it's prospering. Yeah. Whereas other people shut their restaurants down and, you know, they're, you know, on unemployment. So it's just, you got to go after it, whatever the circumstances are. Yeah, absolutely. I've, yeah, you've, you hear of those stories. Uh, you know, some, it's like, you know, that, that circumstance, that person asked that question, what, what can I do right now? Right. And whereas a lot of them, a lot of people, unfortunately haven't, they don't know to ask that question. And they're just like, oh, look what happened to me. And uh, it's like, they're stuck and they have to deal with it. So yeah, that's a, 
that's and you know we want to have a lot of compassion for people that are stuck in that place but that's why i dedicated my life to trying to get this message to people so more and more people can make that shift instead of getting caught in that victim mindset to actually okay what can i do there's always something yeah i agree with that for sure um what's uh as we start to wrap this up if there are one or two things you could give to the listeners, you know, if they were to implement those today, it would help move their life forward today. What would that be? You know, I think the, the foundational work we all need to do is to get really clear about who we are and what we want. Because if, if I'm not clear about who I am and what I want, what, what's important to me in my life, it's like throwing open all the doors and windows and just being broad with all the distractions of life. They're going to really going to drive, my life day to day, 24 hours a day, because there's a huge world of distractions and people that want to run our life for us. Right. And it's getting worse all the time. And if we're not clear about who we are, then we don't have a chance of being in a self-leadership position. So I think we need to do the work, do some journaling, get a coach, whatever we need to do. Like who am I and what's really important to me in life? What's most important to me and what are my goals? What do I really want? And be willing to think big, be willing to, you know, Write down 20 pages. I want this. I want this. And some of it's going to be silly and grandiose. But if you, if you stop editing yourself, you'll find those jewels or the things that you want that are really important. And then you find a way to make it about more than yourself. Yeah. How is this also going to be a benefit to my family and my kids and society and the community? And once you get clear about that, then it's a matter of having the inner resources to stay on track with that. So getting some coaching, but also understand the nature of habit formation, understanding your own psychology a little bit understanding why you do the things the way you do and and understanding that our whole brain is plastic and changeable and we can reprogram it and develop the neural pathways to support the new habits that'll lead to the new results that we want. So it's just a matter of doing the work, but it starts with getting clear and having the courage to dream again and and be clear about what's really important to me instead of letting the world decide that for me. So I, I think that's really the most important thing. And there's so much help available today. You know, I mean, there's the knowledge that's available and the help is available through through like your work with championship leadership. And there's there's so many people like yourself out there that are providing just really clear distinctions, really good coaching that uh, if somebody wants to get their life going, it's not that hard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always hard work. I shouldn't yeah. say that. But it's there are a lot of resources, though, for sure. Doable. The resources yeah, absolutely. are there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I appreciate you today. This has been an uh, awesome conversation and really enjoyed it. What's, um, what are a few ways we can find out? I know you got the virtual conference coming up in January. That sounds amazing as well as, you know, everything else that you got going on. What are some of the best ways we can find out more about you and what you have going on? Yeah. Well, uh, two places quickly. My basic website is just uh, fleetmall.com. My first name and last name, F-L-E-E-T-M-A-U-L-L, fleetmall.com. My all my online seminars and everything is uh, at hmi.fleetmall.com. That's Heart Mind Institute. So hmi.fleetmall.com. And I've got four or five uh, digital seminars on there now that uh, radical responsibility, mindful leadership, neurosomatic mindfulness, things like that. Our last conference is there. The whole thing is there. You can you can purchase lifetime access to the Global Resilience Summit, which is amazing material. And also uh, information about our upcoming conference, which will have its own website, but we're not quite there yet. Well, actually, I could, I, well, it's not up yet. So they, just go to my website. They can find out about fleetmall.com or hmi.fleetmall.com. And if anybody awesome. happens to be interested in the prison work, they can go to prisonmindfulness.org, prisonmindfulness.org. 
I appreciate it. And we'll make sure that we get all of that up in the show notes as well, of course, for anybody that's driving or whatever, uh, so you can get back to it. Yeah, uh, I, safely. Think I, I don't have my, oh, I do have it right here. That's the book, Radical Responsibility. So okay. it's available yeah. through it, any of your online where? booksellers. Okay. Yeah. So it's how yeah, to so, move uh, blame, we'll get... fearlessly live your highest purpose, and become an unstoppable force for good. I love it. Definitely yeah. we'll check that out as well. Do you get that on audiobook as well? Yep. Great. Cool. So we'll get that linked up as well. His book. Uh, everything else that he's got going on here, Fleet, I uh, really do appreciate you taking time today. Uh, it's been it's been an honor. It's been great. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot, Nate. And and I like I love your work. I've just gotten introduced to you, and uh, I went through your six step program, and and I didn't go look at your offer yet, but I, I'm afraid to. I might get. I'm, you might talk me into going. For it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But no, it's really great work. I mean, it just you know helping people get really clear about the mindset that it's going to take them to success, right? And commitment. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. talked about it. It's that, you know, it's that uh, getting to the point of being able to, you know, say yes and make that. Yeah. And if you can't, you got to go back to square one, right? Yeah. Figure out, right. you, must, you must not be clear about what you want or you could have said yes, right? Maybe yeah. that's not really what you want. Well, you get to 100%. that point. And then yeah. that, that burn the boat commitments. That's what I love. I love yeah. that, you know, just burn the boats, get committed because that's what it takes. And when you do that, you, suddenly you're on fire, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. To, death to make that kind of commitment. But once yeah. you do, then suddenly you're on fire with a little bit of fear, but, but also right. a lot of passion. Yeah. Life yeah, becomes definitely. really exciting. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. No, it's um, great work. Really, really great work. Yeah, thank you. I really do. Um, all right, Fleet, will you have a great day? Okay, you too. In 05 and 06, I deployed to Kuwait. I used to wait every day for them to say, Nature going home. I miss my life, miss my wife. For 15 months, she was all alone. But when I got back, I felt out of control. Feeling entitled, I put my life on hold. I keep on drinking, so I'm sinking in a river of liquor. Me and my wife weren't all right. I didn't reconnect with her. I had a business, insurance agent, and rental properties. But is there something bigger than this? I know there's gotta be, so I invested in myself. I started seeing coaches. Life is a camera. I fixed the lens, and now I see in focus. Now my life's unrecognizable from my life just a couple years ago. 17 plus years of marriage has never been better than this. And we got three kids, that's who I do it for I'm gonna be a leader, I'ma lead the way Cause I'm a firm believer, we can do anything we want If I said it then I meant it, I probably already did it Consider it done If you need some inspiration you should play this Championship Leadership Podcast